0: Welcome to the, the, uh, my favorite portion of Cartoon Crossroads Columbus, which is kind of our, our late Friday ramp-up as we transition from campus and head downtown for the Expo and Marketplace tomorrow. Um, this is our keynote presentation, so the first of those three events. We'll have a, a, a reception over at the Billy Islands celebrating their 40th anniversary from 5 to 7. And then tonight's event um, in this very space is a screening of... My friend Dahmer with uh, introduction and Q&A with the graphic novelist on whose work it's based, Durf Backer. So that should be a great event. And I, I, I've talked to many people who have tickets to both. So thank you for coming out. I would like to thank, as we're always uh, asked to thank and always welcome to thank, our venue partners for Thursday and Friday. That's the Westner Center for the Arts. Hale Hall and the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum. Without their support and help in providing the great facilities that we have, uh, Cartoon Crossroads would be a much, much different show, a much sadder show, <laughs> as it goes. I'd like to introduce our, our um, moderator uh, first, um, someone, a, a close friend of mine, she, she's been, she celebrates her fifth year at the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum this, this year. She is a great friend to comics um, and a, a great friend, period. Uh, she's, the, and I, I ran this past her, so it's, it's, it's absolutely insane that I'm going to mess this up. But she's an associate curator at the Billy Ireland and an assistant professor at OSU. And she's really good at both. Not only can you see the results of her work over at the Billy Ireland, but she just won a teaching award. So... <laughs> let me welcome to stage Caitlin (laughs) McGurk. And our our special guest tonight um, is someone that has one of the great already storied career in comics. I first encountered him, and I'll get personal with this, when he... Moved, he was a, as, as successful a college cartoonist as could be, but when he was in Chicago after schooling, um, his work started to appear in serial form in the free weekly New, New City and then later on the Chicago Reader. Am I right about that? Do I have that? Yes. And it was kind of a great to live in a town at a time when a cartoonist was so front and center that he kind of dominated art discussions. I worked in an art gallery at the time and we would talk about the latest of the strip that we just couldn't believe was in there and so, and so good. Those newspaper strips became the basis of his amazing kind of legendary comic book series, the Acme Novelty Library, where Chris not only provided um, these scores and scores of beautiful comics and uh, hilarious, humane stories, but also kind of destroyed what we think of format in comics and, and made that kind of a part of the art, overall artistic presentation. Um, One great work um, to come out of Acme Novelty Library was Jimmy Corrigan, of course, the great who was serialized there and then collected in a book. And was part of that late 90s kind of concluding thrust of of where we could no longer argue that um, comics had a a certain literary value and a certain cultural power. Um, Since then, he's continued... um, to to release issues of Acme, um, has also worked for The New Yorker and other publications. And um, his 2012 book, Building Stories, uh, ripped through all sorts of awards that year. And it's kind of interesting that Durf is speaking later on tonight because those were kind of the twin books of 2012. So we're celebrating um, kind of a, a very special year in comics. I think he's currently working on three different serial projects, And he is here in support of his tremendous looking art book and commentary book monograph from Rizzoli USA. I'm going to stop sweating and get out of the way, and you all can uh, help me uh, recognize Mr. Chris Ware.
1: everyone. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you, Tom, for that amazing introduction.
2: Is that on? Yes.
1: We really appreciate all of you being here. You know, at 3 p.m. on a work day, and I hope you'll be hanging out for the rest of the CXC festivities. Hi, Chris.
2: Hi, how are you? Thanks for coming. This is really nice of all everybody here, so there must not be a lot going on in <laughs> Columbus on a... Friday afternoon at 3.10. So, anyway, apologies in advance. I usually, I have to always apologize before these things because I get really freaked out and nervous. And um, one of the reasons I became a cartoonist is so I don't have to do, didn't have to do things like this. And now, this is like, I mean, like, you think of 19th century authors, I think Tolstoy did six interviews his entire life. You know, you think every, every artist and filmmaker and cartoonist and writer has to go out and now talk about themselves. And we all became artists, so we didn't have to do that. So anyway, but I have a feeling that every single person in this room is a cartoonist. so I don't have to explain these things. So anyway, actually, can I have see a show of hands, yeah, please, of all the cartoonists here? Holy shit. And then okay. raise your hand
1: if you work in comics or teach <laughs> comics, too.
2: Wow. Okay. Cool. So we can, we can speak very specifically. Yeah, I these think, are our people. I you know, we'll have to explain about, like, yeah, pictures and words and all that crap. Like, so.
1: <laughs> you guys get it, right? Okay. So um, congratulations on Monograph. I think that we have some of the first copies here because it comes out officially next week or the week after. Um, if anyone hasn 't seen it yet it 's going to be it 's on sale at the Wexner Center bookstore and there 's going to be a signing immediately following this, but it is huge it 's physically gigantic Sorry, very like heavy, beautiful book yeah. and um, and the title has a double meaning right
2: yeah it 's kind of a triple meaning I guess I mean it was uh, this I got asked to do this in two thousand and five or two thousand and six by Rizzoli. I had a show at the Museum of Contemporary Art, and there was no catalog for it and they asked, well, would you want to do a book later on? And I said, yeah, but I didn't didn't feel like I had enough work at that point. So I put it off and put it off until, what, 12 years later now, I guess, or something. And I just kept thinking of it as the monograph. And then it dawned on me one day that that's like the perfect description of a cartoonist. It was just a single person, alone drawing, basically. And then Gary Panter said something once that really stuck with me, is that he started? He said he started to think of all of his life's work in cartooning as one single drawing, which is the sort of thing that only Gary Panter can say. And there was another meaning for it, too, and I can't remember what it is now. Must not be a good meaning. So anyway, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's basically the idea. And it's, I mean, most artists know what a monograph is. It's a book about an artist, and usually they're written by art critics or art historians and they're kind of dry and they have pictures of paintings that nobody can see unless they go to a museum. So the trick was like, how do I make a book about stuff that everybody has anyway that's it, already printed and that they probably either maybe don't even necessarily want anymore or they threw away the last time they moved or something or how do you make a book about books so that was kind of the idea and the whole thing looks ludic- ludicrously egotistical and way overcompensatory so I'm sure like a psychologist would have a field day <laughs> trying to figure out what it was really about so but, um,
1: well it's I mean it's it's gorgeous and it's full of uh, very personal anecdotes and personal photos as well, getting back, I mean, throughout your family history, uh, but one of the things I was wondering about is um, what it's like to, to basically, you know, maybe halfway, hopefully maybe less than halfway through your career, be uh, assessing it, looking back, and what was that process like to create this book, and to go back and, you know, record all of those memories, and, and take a look at all of your old artwork and, and family photos,
2: Well, what I really want, I mean, it was just kind of just happened because the idea behind it is I, I didn't want to have a book where there was like boring text and then pictures of things. I wanted the text to be just about whatever I happened to be thinking or going through at the time, like the most honest, unpretentious you know, this is what I was feeling at the time when I did this artwork, and it just kind of came out. And then, of course, naturally, that ends up being sort of a self-indulgent biography. So then it ends up just looking, then, like an illustrated biography and like a really arrogant mistake or something. So, and then I just I put in uh, some old photos just because those are always kind of funny to see when you had bad hair or something, in you know, eighth grade or whatever. And <laughs> All cartoonists come from really sad beginnings, and. So, at least my generation does. So, but I wouldn't say it was cathartic or fun or anything. I, I kept thinking like, oh, this will be great. I'll get to think about all my great days and my fun adventures as a youth. Or and it was paint. I'd do anything to avoid working on it, you know. So, but um, which you, and you can't you can't complain to people and say like, I really don't feel like working on my art book about myself. <laughs> about There's me. not a single person you can say that to. So
1: well so uh so the book the book starts you know at the beginning, so I thought we could but talk about um life for you growing up in Omaha and what that was like being raised by uh your mother and so your grandparents
2: right it was basically just the life of a privileged white middle class kid you know which cool. it took me like you know forty years to sort all that stuff out and figure it out um but yeah, Omaha is kind of like the middle of the country, middle class, middle everything, middle America. Um, and my, I didn't know my dad, and my mom raised me, and my, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother, and my grandfather was a newspaper editor for the Omaha World Herald, and he was, uh, one of his jobs as managing editor was to decide on the comic strips that went into the pages of the Omaha World Herald. And as a result, he was friends with a lot of cartoonists, like um, we were talking earlier, Milton Kniff, and... Walt Kelly and Bill Holman would um call up my grandparents' house when my mom was a little girl and she would answer the phone and there would be Milt Kniff calling up to talk to my maybe he'd had a couple of drinks or something I don't know you know or just like <laughs> I get think there was like a culture of of, of getting in well with uh, with the um you know the the Editorship. I just realized. Oh, this is who did that. Thank <laughs> it just you. Turned Somebody... on.
1: I think th- these are just going to be looping images throughout.
2: Yeah, I created this loop of like stuff to run behind us, so you wouldn't have to look at my shiny pink forehead. And I forgot to turn it on. Then, out of nervousness. Um, anyway, so. Um... I, I kind of grew up around cartoons. My grandfather wanted to be a cartoonist, and I don't know if that like transmuted to me, but it certainly did when I realized I couldn't do anything else and I would get made fun of and beat up in school, and, and I just decided to keep to myself and draw in the corner and try to become a, an artist, so...
1: Was that encouraged? Like, was he actively, you know, was he the person that basically introduced you to comics? And if so, which ones?
2: I think indirectly, because then in the basement of their of my grandparents' house were was a collection of, of of like free newspaper volumes, like all the Peanuts books that went out. Like, he was one of the first uh, papers to add Peanuts, so he had all of the all of those original paperbacks. And I used to sit down there and read them. Um, and I and then there was also a stack of superhero comics, like those really weird DC comics of like superman's pal jimmy Olsen, where jimmy Olsen has to put on a dress to save the world or something mm-hmm. like those really like i don't know what they were thinking when they were writing those things um but um so i would go back and forth between those two and um that kind of formed my, my my introduction to comics, I guess, in a way. Yeah,
1: but, w- was your family supportive of it when you were first getting into it? I think they
2: were just happy I was interested in anything, and I didn't like, you know, it was. I mean, but it would be disingenuous for me to say that that was paired with a with just overdoses of television every single day of my life. Yeah. Like I had a TV in my room, which is just the worst idea. Of course, now everybody has a TV in their pocket, so. But I would sit and, and tune in the television and like Saturday afternoon and it wouldn't go off until I passed out in front of it with a bag of Doritos and a giant two liter of orange soda. So <laughs> that was my adolescence. So, And then I quit watching television when I went to college. So,
1: Well, we, uh, we were just briefly over at the Billy Ireland doing a little tour and um, you had re- requested artwork from a couple people that you were particularly interested in seeing like Claire Briggs and George Harriman and Frank King. Uh, when did you find out about those artists and what is it about them that specifically speaks to you? Well, I think as a,
2: you know, as a kid, I was reading a lot of superhero comics and I wanted to be a superhero. I, had like a, I made superhero costumes and actually thought I could get superpowers until I realized, of course, that was an impossibility when I became a, an actual adolescent. Um, and uh, my mom started dating the local Newscaster from Channel Three NBC, um, who had started working at the the World uh, Herald as well as a columnist, and he was really into early jazz and old. Comics, uh, specifically Tunerville Trolley and Crazy Cat, and he would come over to our house and bring these those uh, Woody Gelman reprint volumes mm-hmm. and show them to me. And I just I couldn't understand the first thing. I thought these are the weirdest things I ever had seen, and that Crazy Cat especially made me really uncomfortable. And but I felt drawn to it at the same time. So by the time I got to college, then um, that being in my brain, and then my friend in college who I met, John Keen, uh, who's a cartoonist for the local. For the a student newspaper, was very much into those early comics, and he had the the Smithsonian volume edited by Bill Blackbeard. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, he kind of turned my brain back to that stuff and made me realize that the superhero stuff I've been reading was just you know specious nonsense. So, mm-hmm.
1: um, did you know from a pretty or did you feel from a pretty young age like? you wanted to work in comics and be a cartoonist? Or did, did it seem totally unviable? Or?
2: I think I actually sent a uh, a submission to Fantagraphics when I was like 14 years old or what? something to some. And Where's then also Gary? to Charlton Comics. Charlton had this like weird, I can't even remember, I think it was called Bullseye or something, I can't remember, where they had like young, is that right? So like young cartoonists like submitting stuff, you know? And I'm sure it was just like, oh, we won't have to pay them, and then we can print it or... Uh, but, um, yeah, I didn't get letters back, which is probably good. So then I learned never submit anything. Just wait for people to ask you if you want to do something. Otherwise, <laughs> it's, it's like the whole thing, don't ask anybody out. Just wait until, because you know, it's too painful otherwise. So. Yeah. But, but it was the early comics that really turned my brain around and the fact that they used the full page as a composition. And they really lived on the page in the way that the later work, the kind of post-Milton Kniff stuff, where it was an in, in imitation of a... Uh, of a sort of cinematic approach of using the panel as a lens or as a hole through which you're seeing the world before that comics weren't didn't operate that way at all they were they were a that every panel was the entire world itself mm-hmm. so those comics to me really and even to this day they really have a life on the page that that sort of selective viewing uh, comics don't have so yeah
1: when you are laying out your own pages or coming up with your Design. Are you ever taking inspiration from some of those old pages, or studying them for it?
2: Oh yeah, I still do. I've got you know I've got my own little tiny Billy Ireland collection, and a tall and a tall uh, flat file that I go through of old gasoline alleys and crazy cats and stuff like that.
1: So, yeah. so um, I'd like to talk about your grandmother because I mean, okay. who doesn't play a bigger role in your work? It would be wonderful to hear a little bit about her and uh, the effect that she had on your life. And continue, the the grip she holds on inspiring you.
2: Yeah, I think I mean she was just a really uh, well, she was an interesting woman, and in that she had, like as early in the twenties she cut her hair really short and just started wearing pants, which I mean was you know some that was some women did that then, but it the, still at that point was kind of edgy, you know. And she spent her whole life as a very kind of independent person. She mowed her own lawn until she was in her seventies, and she's a very very funny and very engaging and very uh, what's the word, uh, precise and, and um, heartfelt storyteller. And as I got older, I started asking her more and more questions about her early life. We'd sit at the kitchen table, and she would sit there for an hour and a half, two hours after dinner, oh, and I'd be either still living in Omaha or going up to visit her after I'd moved away. And it was, I mean, there were times where I'd be sitting listening to her, and the whole world would just vanish, and I would literally feel like I was there with her at age twelve or thirteen at whatever story that she was telling about her childhood and it really felt like like time travel in a way. So and on top of that she was one of the she's the person around whom I felt most like myself, I think, you know. And I think that's I think that's one way of like defining love in a way, is it's somebody who makes you feel most like either yourself or what you wanna be. So and she was always very encouraging and seemed to kinda kinda understand, you know that kind of impulse, I guess. So, But she could be critical, too. So I remember once I, I gave her a copy of X-Men 137, which is the death of Phoenix, when I think I was 15 years old, and asked her to read it. And she very, you know, very politely sat and read the whole thing. And then, you know, I said, so what did you think? Wasn't it a powerful work of art? And she's <laughs> like, you know, I really thought it was horrible. You know, I don't know why you're reading this junk, you know, so... Yeah. But, um...
1: And did she... Um... Uh, was she an artist in any way herself, or she
2: wasn't? And I would try to get her to write stories down because she had such a peculiar way with words. She would always use verbs in a very strange way, like you know, like she would talk about engineering dinner or something yeah. like that. And I can't, I can't really recreate that, but it was. It, it, she had such a lively way of speaking, and she. It's, I have some letters that she wrote, but she wouldn't write down her life story, her family story. She took tons and tons and tons of photographs, though, which was my first real introduction to the fact that life is extraordinarily sad and that I would go through, Then she arranged them all, of course, chronologically because that's what you do with photo albums, and I'd go through these photo albums and see my mom grow up and me be born and then everybody getting old, and I, I remember once sitting in the basement just being overwhelmed with this sense of inevitable death and hopelessness but also at the same time this like real like kind of inconsolable love for her and for my mom and uh, maybe like going upstairs and like crying and stuff and it was i mean in a way it was sort of like she was making art in a way but it was but in a sort of indirect way i guess so
1: yeah um and your your grandfather did he he tried his hand at cartooning you mm-hmm. have some of his work in the or at least a piece of his just a book. couple of
2: little drawings yeah he wanted to be a cartoonist and went to the uh, university of nebraska to study art and told his parents i think he was studying math or something I completely lied to him about it and then but he was got into a lot of trouble and ended up stealing stationery from the dean's office with one of his his friends and sending a letter to all of the fraternities on campus um uh, requiring them to show up at the gymnasium. I think on a Sunday morning for mandatory VD testing, <laughs> and then he got he got thrown out of college for that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then my mom, when she went to college, she ended up she took, she got like um Pepsi bottles and pour and and rebottled a uh, dark beer in them and sold it to the freshmen, and she got thrown out of college too. So but I think I was like the first to. I didn't actually finish my degree either, but I didn't have the, the proud distinction of being... Tossed out. so but, <laughs>
1: uh-huh. Was your mom an artist?
2: She actually is an artist. She, she's a really great painter. She's a much better painter than I'll ever be. Uh, and she she used to draw horses for me. She could really draw anything. She's a really careful observer. I think a lot of every, everybody was an artist a couple of generations yeah. ago. Like you were trained to watercolor, you're trained to see, you were trained to look. Nobody is trained to look anymore. It's like it's the fact that even looking is seen as a skill is ridiculous because it's mm-hmm. it's looking is living, you know, mm-hmm. and it's. And people say oh, I couldn't draw a straight line. It's like, well, first of all, you don't have to draw a straight line. Second of all, drawing is 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 actually just trying to see the world better. So, and I think she was actually probably my first example of of drawing and trying to emulate her and yeah. try to you know. Huh. But uh,
1: playing off that, is it, I'm curious about how uh, you know because you're focused on ob- observing the world and you know processing it into your comics. The more you started to make. Uh, works like that did it change the way you started to experience your life and uh process things that were happening
2: i think yeah i mean you start thinking about story like i when i started writing stories i just thought telling stories is just lying how can i lie i can't not tell the truth but then you realize that there's some strange alchemy in writing fiction where you actually get closer to the truth it's the difference between dreaming and living or imitating somebody and acting somebody. There's like a, where you inhabit a, a sense of a person where that person can come alive in, on the page or in a film or in a, in a in a story in a way much more than if you're just simply trying to recreate the particular facts of something that happened, which you'll never be able to do because it's always going to be wrong. And I, even trying to write biographical stories, I would get hung up on stupid details of things that I couldn't prove, and then I would think, well, it doesn't even matter. So yeah. there's a there's a... In fact, really, I mean, everything that we live through and that we remember is all fiction anyway. Every single thing we have in our minds about our lives that we've stored away and we think is 100% true and we base all of our identities on is completely being rewritten every single day of our lives and edited and changed. So we're living lives of pure fiction anyway, which I think is one of the reasons why we want to read novels and stories is to see how other people do it or to provide sort of like a sympathetic hum to which we can kind of do that mental gymnastics of remembering i think so Mm -hmm. but yeah i don't know maybe that sounds nuts i spend too much time by myself or something so
1: (laughs) well and i think that sometimes yeah the more you remember something too the more it gets rewritten you know every single time it seems to change and i find uh it to be a terrifying experience where i have a specific memory from my childhood or something that happened with my family and I find out, you know, my my brother tells me his memory of it, and it's totally different. is devastating. Yeah, it's horrible. And it always makes me wonder exactly, you know, is it? It's just that I own that memory, and that's that's what my reality was, or what you know, what's what's the true part?
2: There's no way to tell. I mean, and now I guess that we have our our ancillary storage devices that we carry around with us. We can go back and like, but who's going to have the time to go back and? look at all, I don't want to, like, when I'm 85, I don't want to be, like, oh, I was at the Wexner Center in 27. you know, like, it's, it's just be, that'd be even no? sadder in a way, you <laughs> know, it's like, it's almost more reassuring we doing? To, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. But the contemporary research, I guess, is showing that that you know, like what you're saying about rewriting memory. Every memory we have, we have to reconstruct it every yeah. single time that we have that memory. We have to take pieces of things and put it back together in our in our yeah. in our brains. And it very much that's actually what comics is. Comics are an art of memory completely. Like mm. there's you know, that's what they're built from. That visually, that's what they're built from. They're built from the templates of memory. They're the sensation of reading a comic strip, I think is very much similar to experiencing memory. so And I actually I'm going to embarrass you here so and it and, um, For years, um, for the times I would do talks sometimes, I would mention um, a story about a cartoonist named Chester Brown, who everybody in this room, I'm sure knows and reveres uh, rightfully. Chester sent me a letter, I think it was about 10 years ago or so, with a Xerox or copies of a uh, a, a, um, a paper about comics and memory, the idea of which I more or less divine from kind of glossing over it was that we don't actually remember things as movement or as films. We like to believe that when we think of our memories, we think of them as a continuous sort of flowing action, like it's a continuous movie that we can access in our minds, and this this paper suggested that that was actually not true, that our memories are just simply basically almost still images with accompanying sort of impressions of sound. And I read that, and I thought, that's just bullshit. I'm not even going to read that, and kind of forgot about it. And then a few nights later, I was lying awake in bed, and I realized, and I was trying to remember something, and I realized, like, this is, I'm not, there really is no movie in there. All I'm remembering are these still images with little bits of sound on top of it. And If there's any movement at all, it's almost like I'm in there and I'm moving the arm around, you know, or like somebody, like I'm trying to imagine somebody hugging me and I'm making it happen or something. And I, and, I, and I realized this was an entirely true thing, but I could not find the article or where it came from. So for years I would mention this mystery article of this idea because I realized it was basically describing what comics are as a way of remembering. And um, I uh, I told this to Linda Berry a few years ago when she was in town for the um, for the uh, Chicago I don't know what they call it the something book fair or whatever it's a painful event but um, um, and I told her about it one night and she we had agreed to meet for breakfast and I had also shown her on the iPhone the whole like you can you know speech to text thing and she totally flipped out on it because she didn't know that it could happen so she was just talking into her phone and sending me texts. So she sent me these texts, and she's walking to try to find me for breakfast. And her first text is, Okay, man, where are you? And then a minute later, it's like, Chris, quit dragging ass. And then the next one she sends me is, I keep thinking about this idea that memory presents itself visually in a way that is more like a series of stills than a motion picture. And the more I test this idea, the more true it seems, and it is the most intriguing thing I've ever had to play around with in a long time. It seems absolutely right and mind-bendingly incredible. Um, and I've told this the idea to a number of other cartoonists, too. And they're like, wow, this is really amazing. So anyway, long story short, uh, I finally found out where this idea came from and whose idea it was uh, when Chester wrote me about a year ago or so when he remembered that I was trying to find out who this was, and it was Caitlin's paper about memory. And I have to say that I I don't read a lot of comics criticism because I don't really, I mean, because it can really affect your thinking in a lot of ways, but I've got to say that this is the one time that critical thought or just simply thinking about something really profoundly and deeply affected me and the way I work. I think about it I, my, pretty much every day, actually, and it made me realize how little we really pay attention to our memories. When you think about it, the thing that makes us human and the thing that we do best, probably better than any other living thing on Earth, at least that we can you know, figure out, is that we can, like if I say right now, blue cat jumping over a fence. Everybody in this room has this vision all of a sudden of a blue cat jumping over a fence. And what is that? Because you're looking at me, you're looking at that, or you're looking around or something, but at the same time you have an image in your mind. But how can you have an image in your mind if it doesn't actually exist? And that's the thing that comics get to, and that memory gets to, in a very... It's just, I just to me, it's an astonishing thing, and there's no way to really describe it other than to simply close your eyes and f- try to actually see it, and that's what you did. And there's you can't really prove it; you can't you know go through clinical testing and say you know, but you really figured something out by just paying attention to something that nobody else was paying attention to. So, Thank
1: you. you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, mm, very emotional right now, but uh, yeah, and that was uh, one of the most. Uh, amazing experiences of my life to give a little background to that is i I wrote that when i was 19 20 years old and i was in undergrad and um i was reading your work and reading uh chester brown's i never like you is just one of my all-time favorite things ever and i wrote him this really long handwritten letter about my ideas for uh how memory works in comics and explained exactly what you just said even much more eloquently though um and so I sent it off to him and didn't expect to hear anything back, of course. Um, and then months later, I m- got a phone call. <laughs> and he said, Oh, this is Chester Brown. I got your, I got your letter, and it uh, uh, sounds like you're really onto something. So I thought maybe I'd let, you know, if you wanted to talk for a while. And I was... Shaking like more than I am right now and freaking out and I sat at my computer and I was like, yes, of of course, Mr. Brown will do an interview and I sat there and I opened up a Word document and I still have it saved but all I typed was, holy shit, I'm on the phone with Chester Brown over and over again. I did no no notes whatsoever. Luckily, I do remember, you know, a lot of what he said and it it worked its way into into my paper but... uh, You should have sent
2: that to the Paris Review as the Chester Brown interview.
1: Yeah, Right. So uh, I feel very indebted to him for sharing that with you and for us being up here. Um, But but it's true. I think, like, I, for a long time, uh, you know, I'm very, uh, uh, I don't want to, I feel silly to say sentimental, but, you know, I really, um, very memory-focused, memory-driven, memory-centered. And uh, I, you know, it occurred to me that there are so many really important memories of my life and a lot of really unimportant ones that are basically like slides in my brain, and there are images that I can recall, but like we were saying, it's, it's just a flat image. And it's not a complete image either, you know? Oftentimes, it's, it's, it's like the, it's the outline of a memory or some weird part of it, you know? And so if there's some important part in my life, I can maybe recall a single image from it. And it might be something vague, like, you know, today, if this was a memory, you know, like the, flat, the sharp angle of the stage here or the light or something. But it's there, you know? It's a sketchy version, almost like a cartoony version of something, And, um, you know, you don't remember, at least I don't, I hope, I wish I could, the entire lengthy conversation you had in detail with your grandfather, but you remember like a, a snippet of it, or not even a snippet, but just like a, um, diluted version, a broken down piece of the important part of it, you know, and that, that's a comic panel, you know, like, so, uh, so... I hope this works for everybody. <laughs> it sounds like it worked for Linda Berry. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, there was, I did a strip in Building Stories specifically about that about your idea. There's that the six page thing about the couple on the second floor and the woman trying to remember their arguments and things like that. That's specifically inspired by your by your seeing into that so (laughs) well i mean you told me something and and i don't want to embarrass you if you don't want to talk about it that's fine but in the email you wrote me a few days ago you said that your mother had died when you were 12 Mm -hmm. which to me kind of explains why you would become so uh in you know interested to put it very mildly why you would want to you know focus on what are these memories how can i keep them how can i hold on to them before they you know vanish or whatever so
1: Yeah, and I think that I, um, uh, you know, because of that, and I think the, I don't know, the more tragedy you go through or something as a child, the more you start to, I mean, obviously it gives you a really early sense of mortality, and so you have this really, uh, at least I feel, a drive to do as much as possible or experience as much as possible, but also to have a, like, hyper-focus on what I'm experiencing as often as I can, you know? And once I kind of figured out that that's how my memory was working, I don't know if this is helping or not, but I've started to almost like consciously look at every, you know, really deeply look at everything that I'm experiencing, and in my brain be like, take a picture. You know, I'm like taking, trying to get a mental photo, and reminding myself to like take impressions of everything that's happening. Well, that's
2: actually, I mean, this sounds dorky, but all you're doing is drawing, basically. Because the state you get into when you're drawing is just focusing that way. And yeah. I'm convinced that people a hundred years ago were much more apt to be in that state than they are now. We are we're becoming such passive creatures. So we can't stand being by ourselves for more than a few seconds at a time before we slap our thighs and want to see what's going on on BuzzFeed or whatever, you know. So, okay. whereas before... People would pay attention to things they would think about things they would pay it they would, you know there was a reason that a sunset was actually moving and not just an anodyne, empty sentimental experience it genuinely was moving because you wouldn 't necessarily see those colors, you would be so attuned to how they were playing against each other that it was actually a genuine experience so.
1: yeah yeah um, it's something that I had heard recently was uh, from a, a professor that I had worked with. Um, in the art department that they specifically wanted their students to uh, draw memories Hmm. that they did not have a photo from. And people could not really do it. And that people are having a more difficult time recalling any of their experiences unless they photograph them because we're so used to photographing everything and documenting it. And speaking of that, this is a slight segue, but I had noticed today in in meeting you that you uh, instead of taking pictures you record a video with your phone. I kept thinking you were taking a still photo, and I was like, "He's taking a really long time to take this picture." So.
2: <laughs> well, it makes for funny movies too, and the people you think you're, you're taking a picture, and they're like. <laughs> but most, I just started doing that just as a random thing. If you string it together, it makes a really strange film, and it makes you realize that you're actually organizing things in ways that you don't otherwise know. Like, I'll start. When I, when I string it all together, I'll realize that I'll be focusing on, a like, the upper left-hand corner, there'll be something red in, like, three of the... Hmm. Which is, a, I mean, there's obviously something going on where we're spatially mapping our memories, not only in space, but also as images, I think. So, or maybe it's just me doing it, but I think other people do it, too. So, yeah. And to me, it's like, again, comics, to me, are, like, that's where the real power comes from. You know, certainly they can be used to tell jokes and to have, you know like you know fantasies about power or whatever it is that they're you know that they become so well versed in but fundamentally as a way of trying to get at something that there's no other way that you can visualize or imagine or try to recreate on the page in the same way that when you're looking at a comic strip you're you're not only not seeing it but you're seeing it in the way you don't see a page of text when you're reading it i really feel like it's that's the medium that best suits that even better than film or, or anything else. So, yeah, but.
1: I agree. <laughs> um, what are what are your what's the first memory you have?
2: Oh, geez, that's a, actually I do have a memory of crawling towards a leather kind of like a couch thing a Bob whatever thing you, table. Yeah, table. That's that's
0: cool. the cartoonist
2: <laughs> problem too. As you get older, you start to lose the track of your language. Um, when I, on my first birthday, actually, um, my mom my mom sitting on a couch and me crawling towards that table. But, you know, now I'm starting to wonder if, because for the longest time I thought that's my first memory and now I just think it's just my only my first memory because I think it's my first memory, yeah. so it might not be true. So well,
1: And I have many, well, <laughs> I think I've lost ownership over some of my memories when later finding out that it was something someone told me when I was younger and I like, it, it was so fascinating to me or interesting that it's it's like my dad's memory or something, from something he experienced and I just Implanted it in my brain and visualized the whole thing, and then I think it happened to me by accident. But well, apparently
2: we don't start forming memories until we really start forming language, and I actually think it goes farther than that. I think, it, especially as as people, when we start to read, that's when we really stop. We not only when we stop seeing the world, but that's when we start start remembering it. Yeah. And um, I was there's an episode of Radio that coincidentally was on the radio last week about this very thing where they, the rats apparently can't can't put two um, sense data together to know where food is. They can only know where it is spatially, but they can't combine two things like like it's next to this in that corner of the maze. And children can't do the same thing until they're around six, until they have language, where they can take two concepts and meld them together in their brain and then put them back together again, yeah. which again is a description of what comics is in a, in a way yeah. and um, if they confuse, uh, the uh, they tried experiments on adults where they confuse their language centers and the second they do that they lose the ability to recreate that mm. sense of spatial memory. So, huh. And I think our minds are very much attuned to we associate space with memories and that's one of the reasons why we get so attached to our houses or homes where we grew up mm. in a way in that whole idea of the memory palace and, 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 and um, spatially organizing where certain things are emotional centers of our of our beings are in our brains in fact there's apparently even cells that called grid cells do you know about this There's no? a swedish uh, researching duo named the, the mosers who won a nobel prize a few years ago for it where they determined that there are actually cells that are constructed xyz in little you know neurological neurons constructed that way where it seems to suggest that when we map spaces, we literally create a physical model in our brains in those neurons, like the neurons connect. Really? So, if, you, like, not only are you imagining the interior of your house, but there really is a little teeny tiny house in your brain. Wow. Which is like, wow. You know, it's like, I wish I had not you stopped know, smoking pot because, <laughs> like.
1: That actually is interesting because I was thinking about this just a couple of days ago when I was, you know, I, I have a dog and when I, when I take her for walks, we go, go on the same. Pa- Path generally every single morning or whatever and just happened to go down an, an alley in my street that I had not gone down before and I was thinking about how I was like literally it was like creating a map in my brain I was like this is a new street in my neighborhood and like like everything beyond this doesn't fully exist that I haven't been on but you know yeah it was actually building something there you are
2: I think actually so and yeah. then you associate certain memories with that at the same time so. yeah um, I don't
1: know how it all works I'm anyway. curious about uh talking about the memory stuff a little bit more about like specifically um conjuring your memories or you know triggering your memories in order to uh either well recall them for yourself or for for your artwork do you you know how how does it how has it felt for you when you've gone back to omaha i'm curious about that Uh, about you know seeing your grandmother's house again and you know whether you rely on photos and and or any recordings you have of her stuff like Mm -hmm. that
2: yeah, I very much rely on photos, and and uh, I don't really have any recordings. But um, I haven't been back there in so long now that it doesn't really exist anymore. Like all of my recollections of my town now are just entirely in my brain. That's not even a real place anymore. So in my grandmother's house, she she sold it to the to a to the Baptist church, and they like completely they built like this concrete bunker, and like it's like you know like like impregnated the house or something. This is horrible. And they've destroyed the yard and everything so that there's no sense in even going back to it other than just to be sort of like, you know... It feels like the last few pages of Richard McGuire's here. Whenever I go there, I feel mm-hmm. like a visiting, you know, futuristic person. Does everybody here have a copy of here? By the way, I hope this is like the best graphic novel ever. So, if if there's anyone in here who does not have a copy of Richard Maguire's here, you should definitely buy it. It's the, by far the
1: most amazing, I think, comic book ever. So, um, um, and <clears throat> I remember there's a, there's a spread in Quimby the Mouse that. Uh, Always stuck with me because it's—I think your grandmother's house—and um, there's speech balloons in it, but there's no people whatsoever. And that always reminded me a lot of that sensation of kind of traveling in your brain through a space that you've built inside of your brain to even to be able to remember that. But it's, um, you know, it's empty. It's it's just what we remember of, of it, and the little flickers of conversations and things that are stimulated from it. Yeah, I just
2: found that if I drew things too directly, at least at that point in my life, it felt too fake and too. It didn't feel right. I didn't. It, it seemed too. I don't know. Too too direct. But the irony is that I was trying to be as direct as possible. So now I've gotten to the point where I just draw directly what I have in my in my. In my in my recollection, but it comes out in fiction. And if I tried again, tried to do it as autobiography, it wouldn't work. And. In drawing fiction, you'll draw like a room or something and you'll draw a table and you realize like, oh, that's the table from my art history class in 1989. And then you start thinking about that art history class and like, I really hated that fucking teacher, you know. And then then you draw that teacher behind that table and then you're thinking like, yeah, I've been wanting to draw that asshole for a while. And then there was that girl who always made fun of me, you know. And then before you know it, then the story is going like completely in a different direction, but it's the direction that it kind of always wanted to go. And you kind of have to trust that, I think, as a, as a writer. I mean, I think that's basically the way writers work. They just don't draw. Mm. They draw in their minds, but they don't draw on the page. So there's something, that there's like a feedback loop that comics provides that's unique to it as a medium, and that you're actually seeing the workings of your own mind on the page as you work. And it's a really interesting sort of uh, solipsistic experience, I guess, which is why a lot of cartoonists go a little nuts as they get older, so... But. Mm.
1: Where does your interest in and ability for drawing, uh, sort of architectural drawings and isometric perspective, and and your interest in buildings? Where does that all come from?
2: Again, just memory. And I draw. I mean, I use isometric perspective because it's the way we remember the world, not the way we see it. I don't want to draw the world the way we see it. It's entirely about how it's in our in our minds. So, mm-hmm. uh, to me, that's what comics are about. So, I occasionally will use perspective if I want something to feel like a, a moment of being somewhere, looking at something. But very very
1: rarely yeah. beyond that. So, yeah. did you? Have, uh, so many of your uh, your pages look like. Diagrams or blueprints of, like, trying to figure something out or get inside of it in that way, and I didn't know if you had any training in, like, uh, architectural drawing or if that was just all stuff you taught yourself.
2: No, nope. I just use a ruler, so it looks like nice. I know what cool. I'm doing, That's but, great. you know, I don't, so... Okay. I mean, I think comics are diagrams, you know? I think there's, there's really no other way to describe them, really. I mean, maybe I've taken it a little far or something like that, but I don't want... Like I've said many times, I don't want my hand to be a part of the emotional or aesthetic experience, in the same way that I wouldn't expect anyone to want to read a novel in the original manuscript where you'd see the scratch-outs and the notes in the corner and the coffee stains. I mean, it's interesting, but it would get in the way of the theatrical, imaginary experience that the writer is trying to impart in your brain, where you go blind when you're looking at a page and you're seeing instead what's inside your brain, not what's on the page. Mm -hmm. So, There are plenty of artists who do that, though, Gary Panter being, I think, by far the best example of somebody that can balance those two worlds, if not only equally, but poetically in a way where they both sort of like crackle in in your brain and on the page. But I realized pretty early on I was kind of incapable of, of working that way and I wanted to subdue it very much and work in a typographical way. So
1: I'm not sure if there's any images that have come up of this, but I think there were some in there of some of the things that you've built in carpentry of mm-hmm. where did you learn how to do that? And uh, how does that inform if it does at all your comics and drawing?
2: Uh, I started doing that mostly just because as a kid I like making stuff but also um, when I was in art school I was in the 80s and that was a real he- time of heavy theory and deep thinking and over almost like sort of like a like a brainwashing in a way so and I was getting to the point where I was so doubtful about what I was doing um, that and on top of that as most of you people in this audience know being cartoonist drawing is kind of not fun in a lot of ways like it can be really painful i think art spiegelman has told me he feels like he has a positively charged chair and a positively charged ass so you're like constantly just like getting up Like you'll do anything to not sit at the drawing table and i I have the same problem so making something is a completely different thing because you're actually physically realizing something in space and you're not like when i'm drawing i'm always kind of going through this sense of self-worth and I'm a terrible person, I'm a terrible person, I'm a terrible person kind of thing. I'd suck, you know. And, but when I'm making something, it's more just like, this doesn't look right, I need to fix this and make sure I don't cut my finger off on the saw. So, um, And I, I started doing that in the, in the wood shop at the uh, University of Texas at Austin. I was really afraid because I was entering this world of men that I didn't quite feel very comfortable in, but they were all really nice and really, you know, helped me learn how to use the, the drills and the saws and everything. And I was grateful to them for allowing me into that fraternity of you know (laughs) not dorky kid who's going to get boogers wiped on him and you know in the lunchroom like I had up until that point. (laughs)
1: Um, Well speaking of Texas and uh, Spiegelman I so in Monograph there are two really lovely introductions written by Mm -hmm. uh, Art and Francoise and I understand that Art called you when you were pretty young and Mm -hmm. that was a influential moment for you yes when you were in texas
2: or uh yeah i'd been in texas for about a year doing my uh, strips and as a as a high school kid i had uh discovered raw in the back room of the uh, comic shop i frequented in omaha nebraska named the dragon's lair i don't think (laughs) i don't know how the younger people in this room don't realize the extremes that we cartoonists would go through go to to try to get stuff that was you know just embarrassing places we'd have to go to I was actually trying to find pornography and he had like in the back room was where he had all the like that sort of 70s heavy metal stuff like robot tits and that kind of thing and in the back of one of the one of the um one of the boxes there was this magazine sticking up that said raw. And I thought, all oh, right. You know, and I pulled it up like <laughs> you know, it was like a Yost fart drawing. I was like, oh pff, great, you know, some Euro comics or something. But I bought it anyway, and that was that <laughs> sort of changed my life. So um but I um so I, and I think raw probably made me realize more than anything the potential of comics to tell something serious, if not something actually emotionally affecting if you know really deeply moving which comics up until that point weren't necessarily really exemplary for um so when uh in i think it was 86 or 7 or something my phone rang and i pick it up and it's like hi this is art spiegelman i was like yeah right you know i thought it was my friend john Keane just (laughs) playing a joke on me he's like no really you know i've been looking at your stuff it came because he'd seen one of my strips on the back of a press clipping for mouse which had been reviewed in the student paper. Why he would give a shit, why the Daily Texan had written about Mouse, I have no idea, but so, um, and we've been friends ever since, so, but
1: and so, what did he, he called you, and he was asked for you to submit work,
2: right? He, I'm not sure if he did. that. I think he did. Yeah, and I and I started sending him stuff, and he was always very encouraging, and it was nice because it was almost like I had an independent study with art while I had my painting teachers telling me to stop drawing comics and make oh, giant yeah. monumental works about you know heroic slab marks or whatever it was that was going on at that time. So, <laughs> um, and that's kind of continued, I guess, to this day. So, yeah.
1: so. Um, <clears throat> We're almost, actually, out of time. But uh, I have a couple more things I want to ask. So, having listened to a couple of interviews with you, uh, oh God, <clears throat> and I'm podcasts sorry. and stuff, oh I've I feel like at some point someone, almost always, uh, somewhat obnoxiously, asks like, "Why is so sad? What, you know? Why is everything so sad?" So, I would like to ask instead: uh, What role does humor play in your work? <laughs> <I can't
2: laughs> gonna be the crowd uh well i mean i try to make the stuff funny because life is funny and you have to be able to laugh at yourself i mean that's actually one of the things my grandmother taught me she was always like you know she was disgusted by any sort of pretension or putting on airs or anything and um anytime i think she could even sense that i was taking myself a little too seriously she would take me down a peg or so and i And I think, I mean, everybody, you know, you're, you know, people are in here laughing, even though actually adult laughter is more apparently of a primate reaction, sort of a, it's the sound that primates make when they're saying, please don't attack me. It's sort of a, you know, (laughs) don't come. Um, But it, humor and tragedy coexist in our brains. They're banged up right against each other. And I think you can't just, you can focus on one opposed to the other, but I think that's a a disingenuous way of trying to recreate a sense of what life actually is on the page. So if you can get them to both exist in exactly the same moment, then you might have actually accomplished something. But at the same time, artists like Beethoven and Tolstoy, even though Tolstoy is actually kind of a strangely funny writer, but Beethoven makes humor unnecessary. So then I think, well, maybe there's even another level to which one can take oneself. I don't really know. So. Yeah. But I'm not trying to bum people out, but life is really horribly sad and terrible things happen. And if you don't write about it, then everybody's going to think life is great and we should all be happy. And then we end up in a fucked up country with everybody acting as if like, why are we, why am I not happy? I need to take drugs so I feel happier, you know, and then we end up bombing other countries because we're not getting enough happy and we want their happy or whatever it is we're doing. So That's well, not, you yeah, know, it's not a good state of affairs, and I think it's it's not fair as, as an artist to lie about what life is actually about. The older I get, I realize how much more painful and difficult life is, and how unfair our not only our our world is, but also our country specifically. What it was organized, it's you know, it started basically as a racist country. It still continues to be. It was created as a as a way of wiping out an entire people and bringing in another people to do all of our work for us and that's all still encoded into everything so you can't ignore all that not that you know and it's you know you can't just say you should everything will turn out okay because everything I don't think is going to turn out okay especially now you know it seems like things are going to get really bad so.
1: A few years ago uh, Phoebe Gleckner was here and gave a talk um, uh, with the Billy Ireland and I remember her talking about this exact kind of thing but her, her her she just kind of ended it with you know everything is, is very sad but if it if it has to be sad it can it at least be beautiful talking about her own work and um I'm, I'm wondering too uh you know in your work and in your process maybe this is a process question how do you know when you've really um you know nailed the emotion that you're going for or the the what exactly what you're trying to say when does that mm. hit and how how long does it take for that to hit I mean, know you Use don't write in advance right
2: I don't know because okay. that's to me that's not actually cartooning I mean that's like drafting and then illustrating to me the power in cartooning comes when you're writing and drawing at the same time and you're not sure what's going to happen and then that emotion comes through I only know if it works when I'm done with it and I read it without thinking about it and then I get that sensation and sometimes I think I don't even know if that sensation is only within me. I can only hope if it's in, that it's imparted somehow in the pictures and the words, but, you know, there's really no telling. So yeah. Sometimes it takes months to figure out and see if it worked or not, but you never really know. You just kind of keep going and hope for the best, you know, so it's, I don't know. Yeah. And I don't mean to pontificate or anything
1: or, you know, it sounds kind of
2: arrogant, but I don't mean to... Well, I don't know. Anyway, sorry.
1: <laughs> Do you share your work, uh, re- you know, in in process with your family? I'm also oh. curious about how your family and starting a family has uh, changed your work in any way, or or your process for it.
2: Well, I've been working on the, the next chapter of Rusty Brown now for four years because I've been doing other things at the same time. And my daughter was up in my studio a couple of months ago, and she was sitting at my table, and I have pages from the the chapter that's titled Joanne Cole hanging above my table and she's kind of looking at him and she, she said to me daddy is there anybody out there who's even really interested or excited about this being published
1: oh my god
2: <laughs> and I mean how do you what do you say to your daughter then you know why yes honey like no no there isn't I don't know I'm sorry you know, I'm, I, I'm, you know. <laughs> she's always been even when, I, when she was five years old I was. We were done with dinner, and my, my wife said, okay, Daddy's going to go upstairs and work now. And she said, no, he's not. He's just going to go upstairs and blame himself.
1: Whoa. <laughs> I don't know. How
2: she's, yeah, she's got a good sense of... There was another time, too, when my, my wife and I, were we were discussing something in slightly terse terms or something, and we noticed that Clara was looking at us like this, and... And my wife said, "Don't worry, honey. I love Daddy." And she said, "You don't love Daddy." <gasps> oh my
1: god!
2: <laughs> so kids, there it's. I would highly recommend <laughs> having them in your in your home. <laughs> so yeah. But
1: is she love, is she drawing?
2: She is. She doesn't draw as much. She had a teacher who I really am angry at, who told her she couldn't bring a sketchbook to school. She, she was drawing all the time in class, and is one of those dumb teachers She doesn't <laughs> realize that you actually think better while you're drawing or while you're doodling. And she's just one of those, like, pay attention and watch me because I'm the important person in the room. And because of that teacher, she stopped drawing. I mean, she might have stopped drawing anyway. Yeah. All kids kind of stop at a certain point. But she doesn't draw as much as she used to. So I find that kind of... She's a really interesting writer, though. So yeah. I don't know. Who knows?
1: Yeah. So. It always breaks my heart when, uh, with, with kids as they, as they get older and older watching the point, uh, the, the changeover from, you know, drawing all over the place, like be, you know, really just like f- filling it out and doing it. And then when that hand goes up around the pen, you know, right, that yeah, just That's a good way me. of putting
2: it. Yeah. Or when they, you start making lines like it. this, those little sketchy lines that you start doing right when you start thinking about
1: yeah, sex. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's you. Horrible.
2: Anyway, um, well,
1: so a couple more th- things just before we turn it over to questions. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts about this, but um, <clears throat> we have we have noticed, and we like to, to promote that there seem to be more uh, cartoonists from Ohio than almost any state in the country, and that fact aside, you also being a Midwesterner, Mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts on what it is about the Midwest in Mm -hmm. any way that inspires cartoonists? Uh,
2: Yeah, I have a foolproof theory, actually. Let's hear it. If you think about the history of America as a westward expansion, starting with New York and the East Coast, I always think of New York as sort of the brain of America. And if you think of, like, if you go all the way to the West Coast, you've got movies. like You've got the mind and reading in New York, and then all the way to Los Angeles you've got film and seeing and sex and basically what Faulkner called the plastic asshole of the universe. (laughs) So somewhere in between is the Midwest, which you could think of almost as kind of like there's a reason it's called the heartland. But I really think that there's a reason why both chronologically in the history of the development of popular arts in America, like you think about the time that Chicago was really kind of the center of it all around the turn of the century with comics like little orphan Annie and dick tracy and stuff like that it's a blend of seeing and reading that was pre-cinematic and i think there's something about the weather too as well where it's there's like a sort of a humbling effect in a way of people staying in um maybe working more rather than going out because there's nothing really to do necessarily um so yeah, that's my, my yeah. theory. I guess so. I heard
1: some uh, another artist say at one point, and this might sound hokey, that it's because the sky is so much bigger in in the Midwest. Like that? there's not as many tall buildings. That's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> no bullshit. Yeah, it's like, it's, that might be true. I don't know. So, well, um, please join Thanks. me in thanking Chris. Well, thank Ware. you.
2: No, thank you, Caitlin. Thank you, thank thank you for coming.